Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A wicked winter storm forces Hamilton to change its cold weather alert policy. Sunwing is getting scorched by weary travelers. I'll tell you about some tax changes for this upcoming year. Should prisoners be allowed to unionize? And robots are serving up Big Macs at a McDonald's. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We did see some folks who, had they been exposed longer, probably would have had some frostbite, uh, really cold, um, you know, loss of belongings, just kind of abandoning belongings to try and find somewhere safe to get inside. Um, So, yeah, it was uh, it was a lot. That is the voice of Jennifer Bonner, Executive Director of The Hub Hamilton, joining us earlier on last hour here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. And we were talking about Hamilton's cold weather alert policy, which is undergoing some change here after a uh, bit of a misstep on Christmas Eve. It was super cold Christmas Eve, but uh, I guess the temperature didn't meet the threshold to continue the cold weather alert and, and everything that goes along with it. Added to this whole mess was that because of the storm, it made for difficult traveling conditions, as as you know. So people who are associated with helping those facing homelessness could not get to where they needed to be. Uh, Michelle Baird is the Director of Housing Services with the City of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Michelle, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you. This scenario was really a perfect storm. It really was a perfect storm and uh, it happened on December 23rd and certainly some unfortunate events that evening. So how is this cold weather alert policy or framework now changing? So currently the cold weather alert, really the trigger is at minus 15 degrees Celsius or minus 20 with a wind chill, a cold alert is issued. When that happens, um, the city has some uh, extended hours and availability at rec centers, libraries. We also have our community partners, of course, step up. What happened that evening because of the weather, uh, the city operated facilities weren't open that evening and there were a couple of drop-ins available in the city, but the response wasn't what it normally would be. At this point, a couple of things are happening. We are certainly looking at how do we ensure that uh, whether it's a cold alert or cold in general, that there are drop-in spaces available. Uh, the hub we now have in place that they'll not only be open overnight during a cold alert, but in fact, they'll be open every night during the winter months until March 31st. So that's an additional piece of service available to folks. In addition to that, over the last weekend, when we knew that uh, rec centers and whatnot were closed because of the holidays, we did keep a rec center open at Central Memorial Recreation. And so um, people could come there if they wanted to get inside, have a hot cup of coffee and whatnot. So definitely looking at that. In addition, looking at the cold alerts overall to understand when does a cold alert get called? What does it mean? And when do services come into play versus uh, what is operating on a regular basis? Michelle Baird is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Michelle is the Director of Housing Services with the City of Hamilton, and we're analyzing Hamilton's uh, now changing cold weather alert policy. And uh, Jennifer from uh, Jennifer Bonner from the uh, Hub Hamilton was basically saying, you know, minus 2 and minus 15, there really isn't that much of a difference when you're outside for an extended period of time, cold is cold, is the temperature threshold going to be looked at? Yes, that's one of the pieces that we've uh, committed to looking at. So um, whether or not there, those triggers are stand or something else, that's to be reviewed. 
when it comes to staffing these facilities, I know that's also a challenge. What's being done in that regard? Community capacity right now within the homelessness serving sector really is a challenge overall, not different than other sectors, of course. And so that's where the city stepped up to offer uh, staffing at a city recreation center. We know that our shelters overall are pressed on the staffing front as our drop-in. So uh, continuing to look at ways that the city can help fill that gap as well, be it through rec center staffing, Hamilton Public Library, uh, and looking at what other options are out there. What sort of cost are we looking at now that we're, you know, um, having more staff at these facilities, having more facilities, having them open longer? Because we know we have to heat these places, we have to staff these places. There's going to be, you know, uh, whether it's coffee or tea, warm beverages. Uh, is there a price tag to all this? So at this point, we're still looking at what that looks like and understanding what's being offered through the community versus the city. We also know that City Council in December approved um, funding an additional $125,000 for overnight cold alert. So that money will um, go towards those costs as well. Is there also going to be a scenario where the city says, hey, provincial government, we need more help in this regard? Uh, and, and we've done that in past, Rick. We've reached out to indicate that with the COVID funding ending, uh, it is a challenge to continue to offer these services. Do you think we're in a better position right now than on Christmas Eve? Yes, I do. I think that uh, Christmas Eve was certainly a learning for us. And I think we've put some measures in place in the interim uh, and certainly a, a, a bit of an interim plan to get us through with this winter. But more planning is certainly needed. Michelle, appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us and uh, good luck with this uh, new policy. Thanks, Rick. Have a good day. You too. That's Michelle Baer, Director of Housing Services with the City of Hamilton. It, it you know, every, every, you got to start somewhere, right? In this cold weather alert policy, and you heard it from Michelle, you know, whether it's minus 15 or minus 20 with a wind chill, this policy was enacted. And through that, a shortage of uh, individuals who... Um, are at these facilities to open them up to make sure that, you know, people can, um, you know, get in there and, and, and warm up and have a warm beverage to stay out of the cold. Whether that minus 15 was there or not, if it was minus 10, if it was minus 5 and, you know, this cold weather alert policy was triggered, the staffing part of it would have still been in place. So that, to me, apart from the temperature threshold, which I think is important nonetheless, but the staffing issue I think is important. Because if you don't have the people to open up these warming shelters, it doesn't matter what the temperature is outside. These places are not going to be open. So that, I think, is the key to all this, having enough people in place to make sure these uh, facilities can open. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. During the Christmas weekend, you'll recall uh, that we had a massive snowstorm. More so, you know, a little snowstorm, but a big windstorm. And that created some really cold conditions in this community. Uh, now, the city of Hamilton is working with community partners to make sure that those who are living on the streets always have a place to go. One of those community partners is The Hub Hamilton. Joining us now from The Hub is the Executive Director, Jennifer Bonner. Jennifer, good morning. Welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. How are you? I'm great. Good morning. That was a wild Christmas storm. What impact did you see? I think lots of people, uh, we did see some folks who, had they been exposed longer, probably would have had some frostbite, uh, really cold, um, you know, loss of belongings, just kind of abandoning belongings to try and find somewhere safe to get inside. 
Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was a lot. One of the, the the key issues in all this is that the cold weather alert from the city of Hamilton was canceled, but the issue was it was still very cold. It may not have met the threshold for the cold weather alert to be enacted, but it was still very cold, and that left a lot of people uh, hunting for a place to stay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the threshold itself is a concern, but I think also the storm itself left uh, some of the city-run facilities, sort of the public library and other places where they would normally be directed, uh, were actually closed, uh, primarily due to staffing issues, people not being able to get to work. Um, and that just created a lot of chaos for folks with nowhere to go during the day. So how is the Hub Hamilton helping going forward? Uh, so now the city has gone ahead and contracted us uh, to the end of March 31st, uh, regardless of the cold weather temperature. Um, just to ensure that there is somewhere for folks to get some respite from the elements. Um, so that's been really great. So we've been working uh, from 10 p.m. every night until 10 a.m. in the morning, allowing some indoor space uh, to those who maybe can't access shelter or won't access shelter uh, for whatever reason. So what does this look like for an individual who, who needs shelter? They're looking at the hub, and you're located, I believe, on Vine Street. What, what, mm-hmm. does, what does the situation look like for that, for that person? Yeah, so typically what would happen, shelter beds have been full uh, for a number of months, actually. not. Uh, but as you can imagine, when it's cold out, everyone's trying to get a shelter bed. Um, and even though there is overflow capacity in the system, it is also constantly full. And there's also uh, things like shelter restrictions where folks uh, have maybe had a bad day in shelter um, and can't make access. Uh, those who are couples, um, those who have pets not being able to make access together. Uh, basically, if uh, there is no couple shelter, Uh, So if you are a couple, um, in order to make respite to a shelter space, you kind of have to separate from your partner um, and go to gender specific locations. So it creates uh, some concern for people and and not wanting to do that. Um, So drop in spaces become an alternate for them. Jennifer Bonner is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jennifer is the executive director of The Hub Hamilton, a community partner who is uh, helping out with people living on the streets when it is super cold outside. They're opening up their doors to individuals to come on in. Does the city's um, cold weather alert policy or framework need to be further tweaked going forward? Absolutely. I think there's, there's lots of questions around that. Um, the one thing I can say is that I'm fairly optimistic. The city did move fairly quickly on this. Uh, new council uh, had a meeting. It was the December 3rd or December 5th uh, where uh, Councillor Wang uh, presented the motion. Uh, I don't think we could. We had a long enough period to sort of tweak all the things that needed to be done in that. Um, but up until then, we didn't think there was going to be any warming centers. Um, so I will give council some credit in trying to push that through as quickly as possible. But we do need to head back to the table and talk about the real nuances of this um, and what that actually means. Because I don't know if anyone's been outside, but minus 15 and minus two kind of feel the same if you've been out there for numbers of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the hours that the hub operates has been extended until March 31st, correct? What, what, what kind of pressure does that put on you guys? Well, typically we operate uh, a completely volunteer center that runs a five to nine drop in space. So 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. because there is availability in the system uh, throughout the day. So we became sort of the evening drop in program for the last three years. Um, But uh, this new funding from the city allows us uh, to employ even peers. So those who live on the streets uh, have an opportunity to not only come in and stay warm, but maybe get some job skills out of it at the same time. 
um, as well as earn a little bit of pocket money um, to be able to be working in our space alongside, uh, you know, our wonderful students and volunteers who have been doing this uh, and staff who've been doing this for three years um, on a voluntary basis. So um, it's really great to be able to reward them for all their hard work and uh, to alongside uh, work alongside some of the most resilient folks uh, who live out here on our streets every day. And in addition to the Hub Hamilton location on Vine Street, there's got to be other locations in the community that the city can look at to say, all right, let's open up this space to keep people warm on a very cold night. Yeah, I think city facilities, we need to we need to have a look at what can be done in city facilities. Um, I think there's been some uh, concern in the past. We did do a little bit of that last year. Um, obviously, uh, you know, the number of folks you're dealing with and the acuity of the folks that maybe are frequenting these spaces has to be brought into consideration as well. Um, so having people with lived experience at the table um, as we explore discussions about available space in the city is really, really important. Absolutely. Jennifer, thanks for joining us this morning and thanks for taking care of those who are most vulnerable in our community. Yeah, and a huge thanks to the community who really came out strong for us in this all that advocacy made a change, and uh, that was really, really important. That's great to hear. Jennifer, thanks. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. That is Jennifer Bonner, Executive Director of The Hub Hamilton. Uh, they're located on Vine Street, and they used to. I guess the regular hours were 5 p.m. to 9 p.m., as Jennifer mentioned, but um, they're drop-in service now from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. every night from now until March 31st. So there's some good news. We'll continue with this discussion at 8.20 this morning with Michelle Baird. Michelle is the Director of Housing with the City of Hamilton on how this cold weather alert framework is going to continue to be morphed to make it much more uh, amiable for those who need a warm place on a very cold night. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. All we hear is people being like, what do you mean my flight's delayed? Like, what's going on? What are you going to do? They don't deserve to be in business. They don't deserve to fly anyone anywhere. Chaos reigns supreme at airports over the holidays here in Canada, Pearson particularly, and especially with Sunwing Airlines. My, oh my, what a fiasco it has been. Canceling flights, uh, horrible communications, trying to get Canadians that were... You know, in uh, nice, hot, sunny destinations down south for the holiday period... Uh, the problem was getting back home for many of them and some faced issues even getting there to their destination. One of those individuals is our next guest, Beverly Levesque, traveled to Cuba via Sunwing and probably regrets that decision. Beverly, good morning and welcome to Good Morning Hamilton here on 900 CHML. Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Better since I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> you had a harrowing experience. Tell us about your uh, your ups and downs with Sunwing. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, it started on the 18th. We were supposed to leave at 8 o'clock in the morning. And um, we were told once we got there that uh, the flight was delayed until later on that day. So, luckily, my daughter dropped us off. I got her to turn around, come back, and get us because we live in Brantford. And um, so she came back and got us. We spent the day at home, and then we came back to the airport. She drove us back. And then we got there, she left, and then they told us it was delayed till the next day, the 19th. So we ended up taking a cab home. They did offer us a hotel, but the hotel they offered we were not happy with. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd rather, you know, stay at home and, and sleep in our own bed. 
Yeah, and to be clear, this is at Pearson Airport, not Hamilton Airport, correct? This is Hamilton Airport. Oh, this is Hamilton Airport, okay. Hamilton, yes. Now, the funny thing is, Rick, we checked the Hamilton um, Airport website on the Friday, and it said our flight was delayed. Yet we checked the Sunwing, and it said it was on time. (laughs) Wow. So that's why we went to the airport, because they said it was on time. Yeah, but the problems didn't end there. No, no, it didn't. The next day, they told us we were to fly out at 8 o'clock in the morning. We got there. They said no, nine o'clock, and um, then at nine, they it we didn't fly out. They said they had to send a flight crew. The plane was in the Hamilton Airport, but they had to send a flight crew from Toronto. They were having it brought to Hamilton by by taxi or car or whatever. And so at eleven o'clock, they the flight crew was not there. So I talked to one of the people that. They don't work directly for Sunwing, but they're, like, um, contracted through them. And she said they lied. Oh, no, they lied. Wow. There was no crew on the way. So we sat in the airport until 6. Finally, a crew came in, and they even said they apologized on the plane, and they were not aware that we were stranded there. And as soon as they got the call to come and rescue us, because they were all at home, they came in and got us. Wow. Beverly Levesque is our guast here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Beverly traveled to Cuba uh, via Sunwing and faced a number of issues, including on the way back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you can we laugh about it now. Well, we were supposed to leave on the 25th at 1040 in the morning. And um, we were delayed, and we didn't actually get out until the 27th. Oof. At, they told us 9 o'clock, so we checked out of our room and um, early because we were, thought we were leaving. And by 11 o'clock, we were still sitting in the, in the lobby. And um, the rep said that Sunwing had told her not to release the buses from the airport yet. So we were on hold, so we, didn't even, we couldn't even go to the restaurants to eat. So we had no breakfast, we had no lunch. And um, then when we finally did get to the airport in the afternoon, uh, we were in line checking our bags. And all of a sudden we get a call. Anybody going to Hamilton has to come through now because the plane is loading. Now, I also paid for, like, a VIP thing at um, the airport in uh, Veradero. Um, Extra. I paid extra for that, which I never got to use after all. And so by the time I got home, it was, like, 5.15 at night. Wow. So you have filed a claim with Sunwing. What was that process like, and what are your hopes for getting any kind of refund? I couldn't file a claim. Oh, you could not? Could not. They, um, I tried to go on the website, uh, the claim website, and they said anybody from the 18th of December onwards cannot file a claim at this time to, um, if we wanted to be on um, a call, like a email website, they would email us when the site came open. Wow. Yeah. And I've tried various times, and it just tells me the same thing. So my guess is you're going to seek some kind of, I don't know, repayment, refund, whatever. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, definitely. Um, the last time we took Sunwing was in 2019. We had a delay coming home. Overnight, they put us up in another, in another resort. But as soon as we got on the plane, they handed everybody a $200 um, voucher. But this time, not a word. <laughs> Interesting. So will you ever fly Sunwing again? Well, if they give me a big voucher and honor it, yes. <laughs> because that was the thing with that other voucher. It was only good for a year. COVID happened. They extended it for a year, but that was it. COVID was, what, two years? Yeah. 
and this is the first time we've been able to fly out, and they would not honor it. Wow, Beverly, you are you are one of hundreds, if not thousands, of people in a in the same boat seeking some answers. The communication obviously was subpar from Sunwing. Uh, hopefully, you got uh, at least some respite down in Cuba and enjoyed the the trip from that uh, respect. By the time we got there, we only had two two and a half nice days. Oh wow! And then that winter storm that was here it kind of went over there, so it was like sixty sixty seven. Degrees. So un- un-Cuba-like weather. Un-Cuba-like <laughs> weather, and it was raining and cold. We People were wearing their jackets. <laughs> oh, wow. Beverly, we got to run. Appreciate okay. your time. Hopefully your next vacation goes off without a hitch. <laughs> Me too, Rick. That's Have Beverly. You too. That's Beverly okay. Levesque uh, out in Branford flying through Hamilton to Cuba via Sunwing, and it did not go according to plan. That is for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are two certainties in life. There is death and there is taxes. And, well, we don't like either option, but we have to talk about it here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, And we have to do it because, and it's quite timely, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is out with its annual New Year's Tax Changes Report. Here to help us along is Franco Terrazano, the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, good morning. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on today. So let's go through this one by one. There are uh, a number of major tax changes coming in the new year. Uh, First and foremost, we'll start with the Canada Pension Plan tax. What's the change here? Yeah, so I'm going to lump in the Canada Pension Plan tax and the EI tax increases together um, because they paint a real difficult story for Canadian workers. So we're seeing both the CPP tax, the EI tax, what workers and their businesses are forced to pay into these um, systems. We're seeing those mandatory payments going up. So this year, you're going to have to pay an extra $255 through the CPP tax. And that covers everyone who's making about $67,000 a year or more. Their employer will also have to pay an extra $255 through that tax. On the EI tax front, you're going to have to pay an extra $50 to the government, while your employer will have to pay an extra $70 to the government. But you know what? that really downplays the pain of these two payroll taxes. Because in total, if you're making $67,000 or more this year, so squarely in the middle class, we're not just talking about, you know, the fat cats here. If you're making 67 k or more, you're paying about $4,700 in payroll taxes in 2023, while your employer will also have to fork up about 5100 bucks to the government. Now, the government will come back and say, listen, we need this money to boost CPP in the future and to make sure our um, safety net or our social security net is okay, is firm. Well, you know what? Why do these taxes always have to increase year after year after year, right? We continue to see these taxes uh, going up year after year after year, all while we've seen other countries provide relief. Um, for example, the United Kingdom, Well, they've continued to move forward with their payroll tax relief. Um, But also, it's not just that payroll taxes are going up every single year. It's that we're not seeing any other taxes going down to make up for this. Well, and in addition to this, and we know this is coming, and that is the carbon tax. What is going to be new in 2023? Yeah, so the carbon tax is going to be going up April 1. 2023 it's going to go up to about 14 cents per liter of gasoline now one thing we hear the government continue to claim is that the carbon tax and rebate scheme will make you will make uh, most families better off 
Well, let me tell you something. If you think that the carbon tax, the government's going to raise your taxes, skim some off the top to pay for some bureaucrats, then somehow make everyone better off. Well, I've got some ocean view property in Regina that I want to sell you. But you know what? Don't even. <laughs> but you know what? Don't even just take it from me. Take it from the government's own non-partisan budget watchdog, the Parliamentary Budget Officer. They came out with a report this year that shows that the average family will be made worse off. In Ontario, for example, in 2023, the carbon tax will cost the average family $490 even after the rebates. That's a lot of money. And no, I'm not interested in an oceanfront property in in Regina. Uh, our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We're going through the list of New Year's tax changes, and that's a report that is just fresh out from the CTF. There is, uh, I, I'm, it pains me to even read it, an alcohol escalator tax. Say they're not taxing our booze even more. Oh, I know. If all of this conversation drives you to drink, well, I've got some bad news for you, right? Every time you go pick up that bottle of Pinot to enjoy with your better half after a long week of work, or maybe the rugrats are driving you crazy, well, the government will be reaching deeper into your pocket in 2023 there as well. Or let's just say you want to enjoy that, uh, that case of Keats with your buddies or enjoy a nice cold glass of rum and Coke. Well, beginning April 1, 2023, the government is raising uh, alcohol taxes. Now, here's a, a very difficult thing to swallow here. Every year, the government has this escalator tax in place, which automatically increases alcohol taxes with the rate of inflation. Well, what's going on with inflation right now? It's sky high. That means that the alcohol tax increase next year will be 6.3%. So we're not just talking about a small little eensy teensy bit tax hike here. We're talking about a very large tax increase uh, on, our, on our alcoholic beverages starting April 1, 2023. What we haven't heard from this federal government, and you kind of referenced it earlier on, is the notion of tax cuts. Um, there aren't many, if any, tax cuts on the table. No, not really. I, I mean, so if we can give the government a little bit of credit, it is increasing the tax-free portion of our incomes by a very small amount. So that is a bit of a tax relief. However, however, don't give them too much kudos right now because the payroll tax increases are rising faster. So it still means that at the end of the day, your income-based taxes are still going up next year. Now, while the federal government has raised taxes on Canadians throughout the entire pandemic and is continuing to do so, you know, we looked and we found 51 other national governments, half of the G7 countries, more than half of G20 countries, and two-thirds of OECD countries that cut taxes. So it doesn't have to be this way. So where's all our money going? Well, our money's going to a bunch of politicians and band of bureaucrats that love to overspend. Now, let me give you a prime example. Back in April, the Trudeau government released its budget, okay, a big spending budget. I don't think anyone in the right mind would call it austerity. $452 billion is what they said they were going to spend. Well, we just got the mid-year budget update from the Trudeau government, and now it says it's going to spend $472 billion. So in a matter of seven months, the Trudeau government is already on track to spend $20 billion over its budget. Let me put that into perspective for you because that's a whole lot of zeros. If the government just stayed on track with its spending and its budget, the government would have enough money left over to cut the sales tax from 5 to 3% and still lower the deficit. 
Oof, I, it's a lot of pain. That is for sure in the pocketbook. And Franco, we appreciate you spending some time with us to break it all down and give us some insight on how it's going to affect that wallet. Thanks for the time. Enjoy, if you can, the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, and Happy New Year to you and your listeners. I told you, death and taxes. <laughs> death and death. Those are the only two certainties in life. Thanks again to Franco Terrazano, the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, for joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Really interesting topic that we're going to dive into here today, and it's about uh, incarcerated workers, prisoners, unionizing. Think about that for a second. Extremely interesting. And uh, this uh, next guest has written a book about it. Uh, his name is Jordan House. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University. Professor House, thanks for joining us this morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. What drew you to this issue? Uh, I uh, basically was uh, involved in labor activism my, my whole life. But when I was an undergraduate student at the University of New Brunswick, uh, a while ago now, I uh, attended a workshop put on by Quakers in the uh, Dorchester Penitentiary in southern Ontario, uh, uh, New Brunswick, rather. And uh, I, I really, it was my first time ever kind of experiencing uh, issues of prison and incarceration and something I'd be, uh, become interested in. And as I went on to do graduate work, I eventually ended up writing a dissertation on prison labor in Canada. Give us a scope of what labor looks like for those who are incarcerated. Yeah, so... Uh, Prison labor in Canada is is quite diverse, uh, basically in you know the, the provincial and territorial institutions as well as federal ones. You have prisoners cooking, cleaning, uh, and performing maintenance work, and then also besides this kind of uh, regu- the stuff needed to regularly upkeep the prison, you also have prison industries. So prisoners work in textile and metal fabrication shops, uh, making things like license plates here in Ontario. Uh, they do clerical work. They're involved in construction and agriculture. Uh, at different times in Canadian uh, history, prisoners have uh, assembled Remembrance Day poppies, farmed fish, uh, worked in call centers, really a, a huge gambit of different stuff. So how much do they get paid, if if anything? Yeah, many, many aren't paid anything. Most prisoners in, in provincial and territorial systems are not paid. Uh, and maybe they're offered a kind of canteen credit as uh, incentive. In the federal system, uh, prisoners are paid a maximum of $6.90 per day, uh, not per hour, but per day, uh, minus about 30% of mandatory uh, fees for things like room and board and to pay into the uh, cost of running the telephone system. And so this means that uh, a full-time prisoner working at the highest pay band in federal prison makes about 60 cents an hour. Well, we're chatting about uh, potentially unionizing incarcerated workers here in Canada with our guest, Assistant Professor in the Department of Studies, Labor Studies at Brock University, uh, Mr. Jordan House, who's written about this. Are unions actively trying to help prisoners? Uh, not currently. I wouldn't say there's necessarily any uh, active campaigns right now, but it is important to note that uh, this idea of union for prisoners is not just theoretical. Uh, in, this, in this book that uh, myself and my co-author, uh, Asif Rashid, have written, we look at an important historical precedent, which is that in 1977, prisoners in the Guelph Correctional Center uh, who were working in the meatpacking plant, which was run by a private company and had a workforce that was mixed of prisoners and not non-prisoners, uh, successfully unionized with the Canadian Food and Allied Workers Union. 
and that union was able to make some really interesting gains, uh, equalizing pay between prisoners and non-prisoners, uh, winning uh, important gains in job security so that prisoners, uh, when they were released, could keep their job, which one would think if, you know, the goal of uh, a prison labor project is the rehabilitation of prisoners, then maintaining uh, employment upon release would be a pretty good uh, element to have in that. And, and the union, uh, rather than the company or the, or the government, was able to win that demand. Uh, and so, yeah, we look at that case to basically say that this idea, you know, might seem a little far-fetched for a lot of people, uh, but that there is potentially uh, precedent for it and, and good reason to think that this could uh, really be something which could not only make, uh, you know, uh, prisoners have uh, an easier time, but also, you know, more meaningfully allow prisoners to, to reintegrate society upon release. The book is called Solidarity Behind Bars, Unionizing Prison Labor, and we are discussing it with one of the co-authors, assistant professor at Brock University, Jordan House. I can almost hear my listeners screaming at the radio saying, why should these prisoners have any sorts of rights? They're behind bars for a particular reason. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a very uh, understandable uh, reaction, but I think it's important to note that, you know, uh, most people who go to prison are going to get out. And it is uh, a decision that we need to make as a society if we are going to offer people the means to better themselves as part of their incarceration or if we're just going to uh, punish them and beat them down further. And the question is, you know, what kind of person uh, do we want coming out of prisons? Uh, And so I think that this is the the general basis for for prisoners' rights in, in general. And I think uh, also we should think just about how rights work in our society. And if we claim to be a rights-based society that values things like universal human rights, uh, then we need to seriously scrutinize the ways that uh, those rights are not offered to certain groups of people. And I would say that that should include things like employment and labor rights. Uh, And so I would say, you know, uh, how is it rehabilitate? uh, How could we justify uh, denying people things like basic health and safety uh, or employment standards uh, if we're trying to rehabilitate them. Yeah, so paying paying these prisoners would be part of the rehabbing or rehabilitation process. Yeah, I mean, we could think about it just to put it quite simply. It's like uh, if someone goes to prison because they, uh, you know, did a, did a corner store robbery uh, because they don't have enough money, uh, what happens when they're released with, with no money in their pocket? Uh, and this is not something that just myself and my co-author uh, talk about. The, the Office of the Correctional Investigator, the federal prison watchdog, has uh, pointed out this issue numerous times in uh, their annual reports. Well, I'll encourage our listeners to uh, search out the book, Solidarity Behind Bars, Unionizing Prison Labor. Sounds like a very interesting discussion, and we've been having a very interesting one with Professor Jordan House. Appreciate the time today, and uh, thanks for this. Yeah, thanks, Rick. You know, even after this chat, you know, my, my heart of hearts thinks, you know, there's some pros and cons with this. Yeah, we want to rehabilitate these people behind bars, but in the same sense, I mean, who's who's going to pay for this, right? Like, you break the law, you go to jail for a reason, for breaking the law. I'm not sure you should get uh, more money for working in the prison. I get it. I get it. It's part of that, that rehab, rehab process, but uh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm on side with that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Right now, we're talking about robots. And why are we talking about robots? Well, there is a McDonald's in Texas. 
which has robots serving up Big Macs and combos and all the other stuff that McDonald's jams out of the takeout window. So the question is, is this type of automation going to take off at more fast food places, maybe at more restaurants? Got a text from Don L. earlier this morning who says, in 2018, I was in Kathmandu and we ordered via a monitor embedded in the table and was served by a robot who had all six orders in its arms. That's wild. Bruce Winder is a retail analyst and the author of Retail Before, During and After COVID-19 and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Bruce, good morning. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on the show. Your thoughts on McDonald's taking this step in, in, at an outlet in Texas? Yeah, you know what? It's, uh, it's fairly typical. If you look at a lot of uh, companies, they're looking to automate uh, for a couple reasons. One is they can't get enough workers. And the other reason is they can save a lot of cost. In the service business, one of the big issues is uh, quality, service quality and service cost and um, consistency of high quality service. And one of the things that robots can do for good or bad is offer a fairly consistent service level. So there's a lot of arrows pointing in this direction right now. This, as you mentioned, is a big factor in terms of, um, you know, attracting <coughs> workers into these settings. And at this McDonald's in particular, it's basically uh, humanless, aside from the fact that they have, you know, actual human beings making the food, but then they're packaged in the bags and the whole kit and caboodle and the robot will bring it out to the front desk or the takeout window. And there you go. Can you see this application catching fire, at least in the fast food industry? Yeah, I think it'll. I think it, there's certain pockets of the service business where it'll catch fire. Um, probably in the um, the fast food business, a quick service uh, food business, because it's not really about sort of talking to someone and getting you know unique customized service. It's a it's like a factory, right? You're going in there, you're getting a Big Mac, fries, and I want to get in there and get out as quick as I can with an accurate order. So when you have a service place that really is looking for that sort of low price, uh, high volume um, places like like the quick food, like the quick service industry, um, you're going to see more robotics like this. The other um, part that I thought of too is, you know, now at the grocery store, you can just park in a parking spot and someone will bring you the food that you ordered. Could we potentially see some kind of robot roll away and, you know, to your vehicle and just hand you all the groceries that you purchased? I think you could, you know, down the road, there'd have to be some logistics obviously worked out in terms of uh, how the robot work. But yeah, I definitely think so. Cause you look at grocery is a low, is a fairly low margin industry, high volume, low margin, same with, you know, fast food. Um, so definitely, you know, grocers are looking to automate wherever they can think about how we all check out our own food now at the uh, self checkouts, right? Mm. That didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago. Right. So that's a perfect example of how companies are looking to lower labor costs and also uh, manage a worker shortage as well. Well, this is a fascinating one. We'll be following it as well. Bruce, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much. Take care. Bruce Winder is a retail analyst, author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. I guess in a restaurant setting, um, like the one in Kathmandu, <laughs> you wouldn't have to tip the robot. So I guess you might save 
some shekels that way. I don't know. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.